we've never forecasted a global recession because to get there, you'd essentially need three large regions to go into recession. You need the US, the Euro area, and China. And while the Euro area did flirt with recession in 2023, we're looking at a modest rebound from here going forward. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics, we sit down with thought leaders and do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Steve Odlin from the Conference Board and the host of this series. And in today's conversation, we're going to discuss the Conference Board's new global economic outlook for the next 10 years, 2024 to 2036. Joining me today is Dana Peterson, our Chief Economist and the head of our Economy, Strategy and Finance Center at the Conference Board. Dana, welcome. Hi, Steve. It's always great to be here. So, Dana, you just did this massive, wonderful new report. Uh, for the next 10 years, and uh, which is quite an undertaking when you think about 10, a whole decade and the entire globe. Why don't you hit some, uh, some of the highlights for our listeners? Sure. Well, every year we produce a 10-year outlook for the global economy, plus uh, all of roughly 77 different regions and economies as well. And the key points are that we're still expecting global growth to slow over the next decade compared to the decade before the pandemic. And there are a variety of things that are going to drive that. When we look at a 10-year forecast, we look at it from the supply side, meaning what are the inputs? And the three inputs are labor, capital, and something called total factor productivity. So that, so we, let, you know, why don't we go through um, each one here? So um, maybe a little bit more on what labor capital and total product total factor productivity mean and then we'll then we'll go into each of the areas and and see what your forecasts are absolutely well let's start off with capital so it's called capital deepening which basically means spending on machinery equipment research and development and there's going to be a lot more spending on that certainly relative to inputs from labor and total factor productivity but it's going to be much smaller. And what's going to drive that smaller contribution is that you have some really big economies like China and India that are shifting from mainly producing things like infrastructure to focusing more on consumer spending, which is about demand. So you don't need as much capital deepening. You don't need as much spending on capital. So relative to prior decades, the contribution to global growth and also regional growth from capital is probably going to shrink. So capital then, Dana, means um, investment by uh, companies in the private sector. Does it also mean government? Yes, it can. Yeah. So that's a that in depending on, you know, the the rate of government involvement in the economy, that can be a, a, a huge, a, a huge input. And so your forecast calls for the collective, the total amount of capital invested over the next 10 years to be smaller than it's been in the past, right? Yes. And certainly when you think about China, a big chunk of that will be government spending less on capital. Okay. So so you, so you China's going to dial back on capital. What do you see in some of the other economies? Well, 
in general, we see that capital is going to be a smaller contribution for the global economy overall. But looking at some of the big economies, well, for the U.S., it's going to be about the same. So that's great news. And a lot of that is because we're seeing a lot of new investments in technology and AI, but also because the federal government is investing in infrastructure and providing money for the energy transition and also investments in R&D. So the U.S. kind of stands out as being an economy that's not going to see a shrinkage. However, we will see that shrinkage in capital deepening in China. Also, when we look at Europe, smaller contributions, but not much. Previously, it was about 0.9% to 1.3%, and now we're shifting down to around 1%. So not terribly different. But certainly the big issue is for, for China and also India, we're going to see smaller contributions of three to three and a half percent as opposed to four and a half percent. And then looking at the MENA region, we're definitely going to see a big shrinkage in, in, in capital deepening because they're shifting away, at least the energy uh, producers are shifting away, big away from big investments in oil and gas and shifting more towards non-energy types of GDP. So that means they don't have to build out all this infrastructure to support energy production. Okay, so that's capital investment and a quick trip around the world. What about labor? You, you've talked about uh, labor input shrinking. What is labor input and why do you think it'll shrink? Sure, well, there are two pieces to the labor input. One is quantity, so the number of people contributing yeah. Uh, output for the economy, and then the quality, meaning how skilled or educated they are. And while the quality contribution is probably going to be about the same going forward, um, I mean, it's a little, it's a tad smaller, like two tenths versus three tenths. It's really the quantity and, the, and you're going to have fewer and fewer people in the labor force. And that's every country because Every country has baby boomers and baby boomers are getting older and they're retiring and leaving the labor force. But that process is happening faster for some economies than others. So especially the U.S. and Europe, South Korea, Japan, but also surprisingly China. So these economies are going to have fewer and fewer workers because you have population aging fast and not enough replacement in terms of births and also um, immigration. It's interesting that you talk about China because for such a long time, China was a young country with lots and lots of kids, but their one their, their one child policy, which they had in place for, for quite a while, really created that that hole in population. And now they're facing more what you know Japan and the rest of the developed world has, has faced. Yes, that's absolutely true. So the key things with population growth is you have natural growth, so people um, having children. And if you restrict the number of people having children, either through government policy or because you have more women in the labor market and there aren't enough supports for larger families, then that's one impact. The other impact is the influx of immigrants. So that's like non-domestic non population, but people being brought in. And certainly when you look at the US and many parts of Europe and even parts of Asia, you have fewer immigrants coming into these economies. Yeah, so so that's that's fewer people coming in. Now, the other thing, as you mentioned, is, is the aging population. So you still have people who are alive and and there from a 
consumer spending standpoint, but they're they're not they're not able to to be in the labor market because they're essentially retired. How does that twist things when you've got you know a greater proportion of your people retired? Well, I mean that that's the main contributor to the shrinking labor labor qu- quantity contribution. And so what that means is that you're going to have major shifts in the composition of spending. So when people get older, they change what they spend on. Instead of spending on children and tuition and housing, they're spending on healthcare. So there's a shift from buying goods to services, right? And there is also experiential spending, like going on vacations and things like that. And indeed, most of the people who do spend on experiences are older workers. But the thing is that like that's that also lowers productivity because its services are less intensive in terms of having inputs and people to create. So you're going to see slower productivity growth also in many of these economies going forward. Yeah. So let's let's switch over to that. So the, the economists, you know, use the term total factor productivity. Just tell us, you know, what the breadth of that terms means, and then we'll shorten it to, to just call it productivity. Sure. So total factor productivity is a combination of many things. There's no one easy definition. It's like a paragraph long, but I'll give you some things that are, that you can, that contribute to total factor productivity. So past investments in technology that you adopt now. So for example, AI has been around for 60 years in some form, but now it's much more easily accessible by, you know, regular people and companies. And so the adoption of new technologies or existing technologies helps contribute, makes companies and people more efficient. Another thing is um, benefits from past investments in infrastructure, right? So if your country or your government or state local governments built out big highways and high-speed rail, now you can get to work faster, you can move products faster. It's also adopting brand new technologies. We don't know what's on the horizon. So for example, hydrogen as a delivery for um, uh, non-fossil fuel energy can become realistic. We could have quantum computing. We can uh, build new modular nuclear reactors. Um, All these things are still on the horizon and can help. And then there's also investments in people. So upskilling is a form of make of, of contributing to total factor productivity. And the last thing is that when you think about companies, some companies are called, you know, are superstars or unicorns and they're really productive and they, they're able to produce a lot of a good or a service, but then you have companies that are not very productive. So the birth of new highly productive companies and the death of unproductive companies also helps out total factor productivity. So essentially, you know, if I was to think about this in lay terms, it's it's getting more output out of your human and fixed investment um, over over some period of time, right? Um, yes, that's way simplified from your paragraph long um, thing. So, <laughs> but but if you can do that, if you can get more from an investment that's already in place or the people that are in place, wow, that's nirvana, and that's kind of what we saw in the '90s, didn't we? Uh, yes, definitely. And even in the two in the early 2000s, um, product the contribution from total factor productivity to global GDP growth was huge. It was like almost a full percentage point. And that shrunk over the last um, 
you know, 20 years or so. And it was even negative during the last few years of the pandemic. But we think some of that's definitely going to come back and contribute to growth, especially for economies like the U.S. Um, and also to a certain extent, Europe. OK, so so let's talk about let's do a little bit more uh, about that uh, around the world, uh, maybe hit you know, a little bit, uh, a few more economies and where you're going to see productivity and what part of productivity, you know, whether it's the, the fixed investment or whether it's the labor part of it, that's going to uh, to contribute more. Yes. Just thinking about the U.S., we're looking at a material comeback in total factor productivity. And that's going to be a function of the fact that, yes, the U.S. is the land of a lot of technological innovation and digital transformation. There are also massive investments in at least fixing poor infrastructure. And many companies are going to be looking to upskill their labor and train people because we have these massive labor shortages, especially in the trades. Um, and then, of course, we have AI. AI is going to be um, through adoption, <laughs> once we trust it, is going to be a major contributor to total factor productivity in the U.S. And similar things for Europe. I mean, it's a little bit less yeah. than the U.S., but still quite notable. For China, total factor productivity is going to shrink pretty significantly compared to prior decades. And again, that's because China is shifting. Well, I mean, the thing is that China does have, they are the land of EVs and 5G and all that sort of thing. So, but a lot of that's going to show up in the capital deepening, those kinds of investments. But much of the improvements that that um, you would have gotten from total factor productivity, they've probably been exhausted. And indeed, many businesses or MNCs are thinking about moving outside of China. So there's less impetus for improving productivity. We're discussing the 10-year economic forecast. We're going to take a short break and be right back. What does the future of work mean for your employees? How will your company navigate ESG? Will there be a global recession? At the conference board, our experts translate the latest research and economic analysis into insights and real-time problem solving for your organization. Membership at the conference board provides your team with an assortment of knowledge from economics, marketing and communications, ESG, public policy, and human capital. As a member, you'll have access to our center experts, member-exclusive events, data and benchmarking tools, and peer sharing that will help you understand the present and shape the future. Consider becoming a conference board member today by visiting www.conference-board.org. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Steve Odlin from the Conference Board, and I'm joined today by Dana Peterson, the Chief Economist at the Conference Board. So Dana, let's pick up where, where we were where we were before the break. And um, you know, let, let's talk about which economies will drive the most growth over the next decade. You've said China, India, the ASEAN region. Why not the developed areas of US and Europe? Well, some of it has to do with the fact that emerging markets in general are just that. They're emerging. They have not become mature. Um, and many of them um, are, act for example, even China, they're actually um, going to experience a decline in population before they become rich. So in the life cycle of an economy, you start off you know, underdeveloped and then you 
invest in capital and infrastructure, which generates really high rates of growth. But then once you've done all that, then you shift to a consumer-driven economy, a demand-driven economy, and that means slower growth, but you can still be quite sustainable. So the US and Europe and Japan, they've already passed industrialization and all those things, and they're deep into that life cycle, that portion of their life cycle where they're mainly dependent upon consumer spending, consumer demand driving the economies. But places like India are still going to be developing and trying to more or less converge. So that means they're going to, going to continue to have higher growth rates relative to Europe, Japan, Australia, the US. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just being in a different portion of that life cycle of an, of an economy. Got it. Okay. Now, your report talks about some of the major risks and upsides to this outlook. So you, the, the report, we're not going to go through all the numbers uh, that are in the report, obviously. We would urge everybody to read it. It's on our website, tcv.org. But, um, but, but you made your forecast. And, but then there's, there, are, you know, there are risks and upsides, which means there could be fluctuations around this. Talk about what those could be that would change your forecast. Sure. Well, let's first talk about the depressing things, and then we'll finish on an up note. <laughs> That's a great idea. Good news. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, this is something that we've been talking about for the last three years, um, at least, that we think that there are going to continue to be upward pressures on inflation going forward. And that's going to come from the energy transition and also industrial policies where companies are either uh, uh, governments encourage companies to reshore and onshore. Um, and also some companies are deciding that on their own, given the disruptions from the pandemic. And then there's also going to be shortages in affordable housing that's going to drive up prices. Plus, you're going to have labor shortages, especially in those mature economies, plus China. And that means when you don't have enough labor, you're going to have to bid up the cost for the labor you can find. So higher wages, that's going to filter down to consumer prices. So in that environment where you're potentially going to have continued upward pressures on inflation, that means central banks are probably going to have to maintain tighter monetary policy stances. And we call that higher for longer. So higher interest rates for longer. And that dampens growth. Um, certainly um, businesses, the cost of capital will be higher and anything that a consumer might want to finance will also be more expensive. And then, of course, there is geopolitics. Um, over the, the course of the next 10 years, geopolitics are still going to be a major issue. We still have the war in Ukraine that could potentially intensify. We still have fragmentation and polarization, um, different uh, factions of economies getting together and potentially becoming military forces, uh, for example, potentially the BRICS. Um, U.S.-China tensions which also creates this fragmentation and polarization as economies line up to ally themselves with the US or China. And then something that I don't think a lot of folks are focused on is people migration. Um, and certainly that people migration be can be caused by a number of things. So bad weather events, droughts, elevated food and energy prices, political turmoil. And when you have large migrations of people, unless those people are anticipated and incorporated into the new economy, the new country, it's pretty much a disaster. So, so those are some of the bad things. 
in terms of some of the upsides, things that could make our forecast better than expected could be lower inflation. And certainly lower inflation could come if central banks, you know, certainly are able to bring inflation gauges back down. And also you have things like stronger productivity growth that helps lower inflation where companies can become more efficient or even adoption of renewable energy over time, which we know the cost of that has come off. We could also have a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine and also and that would be a massive influx of, of of investment in the region, but also taking off some of the inflationary pressures on food and energy prices. And then, as I mentioned, you know, faster productivity growth, things that we mentioned, and we certainly expect that for the U.S. And then there's also this rising global middle class, especially in emerging markets like India, which will, as people get wealthier, they tend to consume more and that can make growth much stronger. Yeah, you know, we th- we tend to think of the downsides as gray swans or these, e- and, and they tend to be more event driven, as you've outlined, you know, whether it's a war or whether it's a pandemic or weather events and so forth. But it's interesting that the upsides, you know, while they can sometimes be the inverse, there, there is incredible upside that we that we kind of lose track of sometimes. And that is peace, prosperity, open trade, global, you know, interaction in, a, you know, in a positive fashion without all of the the negativity. That's a big deal. I mean, that uh, that would be the the huge, huge thing if couldn't we all just get along? You know, so it's, <laughs> you know, but but there it's it's real economically. Yes, and I just want to make a point. There are also gray swans, and gray swans are different from risks in the sense that a risk is a high probability event. That could something that could happen outside of your base case. A gray swan is something that has a very low probability, but if it happens, it can be very material. Um, and it's also something that you can conceive of. So gray swans can be positive or negative, just like a risk can be um, to the downside or upside. And some of the big positive gray swans out there could be technological, right? Or massive, again, breakthroughs and how we use, for example, digital currencies or the metaverse or AI. So there's a lot of good stuff out there that can definitely help the outlook improve. Yeah. Now let's just turn into the next year. Um, You are not predicting a a global recession, meaning when you add it all up, you are predicting recessions in various places. Uh, Just talk about um, the difference between a global recession and what can happen regionally and, and what you're thinking. Sure. We've never forecasted a global recession because to get there, you'd essentially need three large regions to go into recession. You need the U.S., the euro area and China. And while the euro area did flirt with recession in 2023, we're looking at a modest rebound from here going forward. The U.S. actually surprised to the upside in terms of growth this year, but we are expecting a mild and shallow recession next year. But the key thing is for China, even though China has struggled this year and seen and is expected to see growth that's below the 5% target that the government anticipates, it's still going to be pretty strong. We're looking at 4.8% growth this year and probably around 4.1% growth next year. That is far from a recession. And so putting those things together, we don't anticipate a recession globally, but we will see moderate growth next year. 
Dana, thanks for joining us today and sharing that little tour around the world and your forecast for the next decade. Absolutely, Steve. Always a pleasure. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Every week, I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover the leading topics in geopolitics, economics, public policy, and more. Please share CEO Perspectives with your colleagues, with your friends, with anyone who cares about the next 10 years. I'm Steve Odlin, and this series has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.